should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me here this Thursday, the 7th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. The Michelle Miao Show is your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. So I, like many of you, um, I'm now super active, super engaged, trying to do something more than whatever it was or is that I'm doing. And although the radio show, the TV show has always been, you know, the core work of it has always been a platform for social justice work and for the activists, especially when it came to LGBTQ equal rights, it's always been there. But, you know, this president er, and, and uh, or I should say this presidency has got me where a lot of you are at. Like, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? Because so many of our lives are affected. Well, I asked that question to a good friend of mine who responded with, we need more people to get involved politically. I spoke to Dolores Huerta, who said we need more people to get involved politically. And uh, speaking to Mark Lilla, who we just interviewed earlier this week and arguing, uh, or I should say <laughs> a conversation with him led to him saying that, you know, we should avoid identity politics and people of color if they're concerned about issues that impact people of color or LGBTQ issues, then you need to run for office. So I have been pondering this. Running for office, you know, it's not, it's, I don't think it's as easy as it sounds. And certainly for someone who's never ran for office, it sounds like an incredibly daunting and scary thing to do. I mean, you're, you become a public figure, your private life becomes public. And then not to mention the fact that you need access to capital, you need access to resources, and you have to be well-liked. In my mind, if poverty is almost a crime, in this country, how am I supposed to have access to that kind of capital to even get elected? Well, I thought the perfect person to talk about uh, being involved and what this uh, you know politically challenging time means for a lot of us. Um, I thought that you know we should speak to Mi Mua, who is a three-time successful senator from Minnesota, also former president and executive director of the Asian American Advancing Justice Organization. Um, and, you know, since the first time I met her, I've just been incredibly inspired. So if it's anybody who can answer that question, if it's even possible for someone like myself to run for office and get elected, it would be me. Me, welcome to the program. Hey, Michelle, thank you. And it's wonderful to um, talk to you again. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, so that that question, well, first and foremost, how are you? How are you doing in this, you know, the current state and especially after uh, the president had announced that he was ending DACA? Well, um, it's a little bit hard to breathe. Um, I feel personally vulnerable and attacked, um, not because I'm a DACA recipient, but, you know, I have people that I care deeply about in my life um, who themselves are DACA, um, and they're, you know, Asian Americans and Latino kids that I've become very close to, um, and young people who are really making a difference, right, in our community, and so... Um, I feel like it's been a little bit hard to breathe the last couple of days and um, feeling a little bit helpless um, about, you know, what what to do. Um, and so that's why I think in these moments of, of um, reactive paralysis, um, your voice is so wonderful. And to be able to have this kind of a productive, right, conversation, um, I think it's, it's, it's the, kind of, the kinds of conversations that we need. Um, in order to feel like we can contribute to perhaps making a difference. So I mentioned earlier in my introduction, I mean, so many of us, you know, are new to this. Um, some of us who might be considered younger, look, this is the worst presidency ever, and we feel like our lives are ending, and our lives are in a lot of ways. Some of us are being deported. Some of us are being incarcerated. Um, some of us are going into hiding. Uh, you were the first Hmong American woman to be elected to state legislator. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and one of the most successful Asian-American politicians here in America. And so just to answer that question, and, and it's not going to be easy, but talk to us about, you know, political success. And, and I think that it's critical to hear from you what political success looks like if we're really going to turn things around starting in 2018. Yeah, I think... Um Political success means different things to different people, right? I mean, I think for some people, political success meaning means um, exactly what we're living through, right? To have one party in control of our national politics and public policy making. Um, for me, political success is how do we lean into and use the institutions that we have to do good for people, right? To do good for people. And that may mean that we need a strategy that is um, has multiple fronts, that people who have an inclination or feel the call uh, to run for public office should do that um, because um, we need people with um, life experiences, you know, a depth and breadth. Age is not a factor, but the depth and, and breadth of life experiences to be able to govern um, with conscious and with morality and with a sense of righteousness and in service to the public good. We need good people like that to be in public office. Mm -hmm. We also need people who are talented and smart to be out there like you, to be the messengers and the voices in our community to say, hey, we can't take this anymore. We can't just sit back. We have to be engaged. We have to be involved. We need the people on the ground, you know, to be to regular everyday citizens who may be a teacher or an engineer or a software designer to pick up the phone and call their Congress uh, members to say, hey, we need a DACA, a clean DACA solution now. 
And, you know, I'm not, you know, to be able to be transparent, to say I, I'm a software designer. I'm a computer engineer person, but I care about this issue because it matters to our community. So this moment is not a moment for a single solution. This moment is an opportunity for a multifaceted strategy mm -hmm. that involves every single individual in our communities. Um, and and I just, I feel like... Um, that means that there's no excuse. You know, the people who say, oh, I'm an artist, I'm not a politician, if the only solution is to run for office, then I can't be a part of the fight. And, and to them, I say, no, the multifaceted strategy calls for every single one of us to lean in in whatever way we can contribute. And that's how we're going to be able to change the conditions mm -hmm. to make sure that the people who are actually sitting in elective offices are able to do the right thing. Right, for the people that they're supposed to represent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I think that, you know, someone like yourself with unique experiences, um, and, and you had just mentioned, you know, as a DACA recipient, I mean, all these unique experiences don't necessarily fit into uh, a, a social constructed mold of what we are used to seeing, especially, you know, in American television, pop culture. Um, e even traditionally as elected officials of the country, they normally usually look like one thing, if you will, white and male, um, and usually have access to capital, which is something that I had mentioned earlier. And so, you know, how do you, how do you navigate that? If that, is that considered a roadblock? Am, am I being incredibly cynical? I mean, should we have more, much more faith in our communities that uh, this is how democracy works, that it doesn't necessarily lead to, to that road? I think that, I think that there's a, there's a um, under the current paradigm, yes, right? The, the cost of campaigns and elections is a roadblock for many people who are actually more qualified, more life qualified to be making public policy decisions. But I think um, um, if we're going to engage in this conversation, then it's time to step outside of that well-defined paradigm right, that serves to perpetuate the institutional opportunities for a certain group of people. And that, that if we're willing to break out of that paradigm, there is nobody that says that um, but it's all about money, right? We need to be willing to reimagine what could happen. I, I can imagine that if we get enough people willing to step out to volunteer, right, for certain candidates, that, that while people are, and I've seen this in my own experience as an elected official, as a candidate running for office, that at the end of the day, some money is important, um, but, but at the end of the day, People power will um, overtake um, money power when it comes to campaigns anytime. Because if we could transform the way we do campaigns and politics by having our neighbors and people who care about the issues willing to, to just own their block, right, or their neighborhood, and to go door knock for a particular candidate to say, hey, I know this person, and this person will represent us. Will you be engaged? Will you come out and be engaged? Um, I think that that could actually make more difference than putting thousands of dollars into a postcard campaign or into a piece of campaign literature that doesn't get read or into a commercial that doesn't reach right, the kinds of people that we need to reach um, at the one-on-one -on -one level. 
So we need to reimagine, rethink the way that we do campaigns and elections. And, and I think that if we're willing to go that route, and if people are willing to say, yeah, I will step up, and I will volunteer, and I will door knock, and I will make phone calls, um, we could actually um, do campaigns and election work uh, without a lot of money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Michelle Miao, we're speaking with Mimua, who served the Minnesota Senate for three terms uh, successfully. Um, Mia, I, you know, the identity politics, I had mentioned that earlier and, and spoke with Mark Lilla, who's a professor and also the author of The Once and Future Liberal, and he was very critical about identity politics. But, you know, I don't know how you get away from not talking about identity politics when you, you yourself, like you're a woman, Asian-American, and, and so many things— um, we saw it with Hillary Clinton's campaign, how people treat even women, you know, who are reaching for that high of an office. Uh, what are your thoughts on identity politics and how did identity p- politics impact, you know, your campaigns and or your political career? Thank you. So, you know, my limited experience, I um, or just in my experience, it's really um, people who are privileged, right, um, are the ones who think that identity politics is not helpful. But for those of us who are vulnerable or marginalized, um, we the identity politics is a double-edged sword, um, and we need to we need to be able to navigate that. You know, identity politics um, uh, on on the one hand, from my my standpoint, is a source of strength. And um, it's a, a place where I could either let it be put upon me and hold me down, or I lean into it and use it as a source of strength. Um, and that um, when people think about identity politics in the negative sense, they think about it in terms of um, it being a, um, a separation, right? But I think that um, true identity politics is an expansive um, politic. It's an it's a politic that recognizes, you know, each of our own sense of vulnerability, and it recognizes that we're interdependent, and that as an Asian American, you know, woman, um, Southeast Asian, um, whether I embrace those identities or not, it it will be put upon me, and so I might as well embrace that, but use that to seek out a common denominator with my other sisters and my other communities. So that together as a coalition, as a group, we could do greater things together than each of us are able to do it alone. And um, so it's, it's an opportunity to find points of commonality um, and to come together um, to figure out what our common, um, you know, what our common collective future could look like together and how do we make that happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that. I'm hearing a lot of the lean in and I want to ask more about that but we have to take a quick break right here. So don't go away. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with me, Mua. The Commonwealth Club of California is the nation's leading public forum engaged with the most important issues of the day. More than 450 times each year, we feature programs on politics, LGBT issues, literature, science, entertainment, and more. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Watch our videos on YouTube and Facebook. And when you're in the Bay Area, join us in person for our daily programs. Learn more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. 
So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me here on the program. The Michelle Meow Show is your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. My special guest on the phone is Mi Mua, who served as a Minnesota senator for three terms and is one of the first, I should say, the first Hmong American woman to be elected to state legislature and uh, an inspiration to me, definitely for sure. I have no idea if uh, I'll ever become an elected official. I'm very comfortable in my pajamas and in my radio studio. Um, <laughs> but we're talking with me about, you know, uh, what what could possibly lead to a successful political career and or you know other actionable items that we all can be doing so i love this idea of leaning in and and so me ex explain to us a little bit more about leaning in although we had uh, talked a lot about that in the first half for those who might just be joining us on progressive voices well i think for those of us who i mean whether that's being uh jlbtq or being um, women or, you know, of a, a biracial, multiracial, um, all of the above rolled into one. Our identities um, is, is also a place where we draw our strength. It's the place where we find family. It's a place where um, we stay alive in those spaces, in those identities, where we find community. And when people think about different identities, people think about it in terms of that, you know, they're, that they're discrete circles. When we all know that we live every day with multiple identities, right, we carry those multiple identities with us. And so, as I said before, it is the source of our strength. And, and when we lean into um, those sources of strength, it gives us the power and the ability um, to do things that we can't otherwise do. So, um, yes, the fact that I'm an immigrant, the fact that I'm a refugee, the fact that I'm a woman living in this country gives me um, not the only thing, but it does give me the energy um, and the power um, and the inspiration um, because there's implications for all of those things in our future as a nation. 
I want other young women to feel like they're powerful and capable. They can they can become the president of the United States if they want to. And and that is a driving force. That's what inspires me to want to, you know, continue to do whatever I can to get people into public office because it's about shaping, right, the narrative, mm. the possibilities for the people in our community. Mm-hmm. So when I see you lean into those identities, it's the source of our inspiration. It's our energy center to be able to do what we need to do. Mm. I want to ask you about, you know, culture wars and, um, the, well, the, whoever had coined the term, I, I think that it was someone from the conservative side, if you will. But uh, this idea that culture wars have destroyed the country in a lot of ways and has negatively impacted the Democratic Party and being a Democrat yourself. I mean, what are your feelings? What are your thoughts about culture wars and also the, uh, I guess, the fracturing of the Democratic Party? And if you see a different, uh, you have a different perspective than the, you know, somebody justifying culture wars as some a catalyst for fracturing the Democratic Party. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't know. Different people use culture wars in different ways. I mean, the way that I would answer that question is maybe a little bit less direct, which is that, um, again, it has to do with the way that we view the world, right? And so much of how we live in this country and this society is based almost on a zero-sum frame, you know, that there has to be winners and losers. Um, And that we, um, you know, we live in a, in a world that, um, where there, there are, you know, owners and, um, um, and people who don't own anything. And what I, the way I like to think about is that, you know, how, how do we shift that? How do we get into a space where, it's it's expansive. It's not limiting, and that it's not about um, who is right and who is wrong. But it's about how do we, um, and it's not even about inclusive, right? Because inclusive implies that um, there's a group of us that are in the in club, and how do we, you know, include you in the conversation? It's about for those of us who are part of right um, the infrastructure, who are part of the conversation, who are part of the fight. How do we expand the circle? How do we, you know, how do we, um, um, how do we broaden the circle? So it's from an expansive standpoint. And um, I think that if we could um, uh, evoke the sense of expansiveness, right, mm-hmm. um, among um, people who hold positions of leadership or who are um, the stewards of our institutions, like the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or, you know, the members of Congress or community leaders, that is about looking at our world, our society, and acknowledging that we, we live in one world. And how do we, when given the opportunity and when given the responsibility and the obligation of being a steward, right, how do we um, govern, um, how do we do what we do from an expansive um, standpoint, uh, to mm. be embracing, um, as opposed to um, um, perhaps from a, a, a from a deficit standpoint, and somehow by expanding or by being expansive, we're going to lose something, mm-hmm. right? Because that's 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 what creates that sense of vulnerability, and that's when people start to um, um, go into this uh, mind game where. Yeah, you know, they start to pick and choose who they believe the winners and losers ought to be. When the fact of the matter is that when that happens, we all lose. Right, right. I, I want to ask you. I mean, I know that your position on LGBTQ equality—you know—it's—it's—it's it's, it's never wavered. You've always been a champion for LGBTQ rights. 
I mean, you know, talk to us about the importance of that and why it wasn't an issue that, you know, it, it didn't seem like it was an issue that divided you between your constituents, like some Democratic uh, elected officials that, that it had. I mean, you had some Democratic um, elected officials be afraid to support LGBTQ rights before it became, you know, socially accepted in a lot of ways. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I, um, I believed, whether in my personal life or in my work, that um, it's my calling uh, to be there for the people who are the most invisible and the most vulnerable. And at the time when I was in elective office, um, I felt like um, my gay and lesbian friends, but particularly the young people in the Asian American community in Minnesota but across the country, were some of the most silenced and invisible and most vulnerable people in our communities. Um, and I was a mom. And I just think about the fact that, you know, that, that I have children and I want a world where my children don't have to be afraid to, and to be free, uh, to have conditions where they're free to be their full selves, um, regardless of who they are. And so, it, you know, from, it's, it's actually sense from a, a very deeply um, a human, you know, um, perspective. Um, and um, I often think that um, if, we, if we can be driven by that, right, um, and, and tap into that, um, I think that that will bring a little bit more of humanity into the kind of work that we mm. all do. Mm. Um, because at the end of the day, it is about that. It's about people's lives. Right. Um, and and I will never step away from that um, because that's one community that is um, up until now, I think, you know, was so highly invisible. Right. And so targeted and so vulnerable. And um, I mean, I feel like we've made so much um, progress and yet there's so much more to do when we think about our trans community and um, particularly the kids. I mean, my heart just breaks. Right. When we. Um, when we think about how vulnerable they are and, right. and the fights that they have to fight every single day. Right. So we're winding down on time, but I mean, gosh, this just flew by. I feel like I have so many other questions to ask you. Um, I, I have to ask it, even though it's, it's probably a question that a lot of us can't exactly answer right now. But during this politically challenging time, and I mentioned it earlier, for some of us, this might even feel like the end of the world, whereas uh, some of uh, other folks who had lived through other presidents might say, I mean, we've had we've had it bad before. We can get through this. Will we get through this? How will we get through this? Uh, you, you know, I, I know that you mentioned we also there's there's multiple things that we need to be doing but you feel you feel it firm in your heart that uh, change is coming and and we can overcome this. Yeah, I, um, I you know you're hearing this message from a refugee, right? <laughs> so, um, I mean, you know, my family, my people, we survived that, right? And I guarantee you that you talk to any of the people who have survived Katrina or the people who are trying to survive Harvey right now or you know, the the impact of what's happened, the survivors of Charlottesville or Irma that's coming. I mean, it's not about, it's not about um, a strategy to somehow, you know, overcome it. It will happen. It is happening, right? And so part of it is 
how do we um, how do we live through this moment? And in the living through this moment, how do we preserve the very best of who we are, which is our humanity, our sense of connectivity to each other? And we must not lose faith and hope, right? That time, um, the pendulum will swing. Mm-hmm. So the question is, um, when, if, and when, like, what, what do we need to do to catalyze the swinging of the pendulum? But what else do we need to do to prepare ourselves so that the day that the pendulum does swing, when the political conditions are there, that we are prepared, right, to do better, to do differently, um, and, and to really contribute? And so I, I feel like in this moment, it's not about denying that it isn't happening, but it's about preparation, mm. preparing ourselves, um, um, equipping ourselves with the ability to, to live through this moment, um, but also being really proactive and preparing ourselves so that we're creating the conditions, both for the pendulum to swing, but also when that happens, how do we do better? Right? Mm-hmm. How do we do better? Mm-hmm. Last question for you, I have to ask. I mean, you know, you served three successful terms as senator of Minnesota. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of the reasons why you stepped out of the political limelight in some ways was to focus on your family. Will we see more of me maybe in the political world soon? Or what are your plans uh, in the near future? I think it, it depends on what you, how you define it. I, you know, I don't know. Life happens, right? And so I, I never say never, which is such a like political answer. Um, but I know for a fact that whether it's you know, me running for office or me giving my irrational support to every single person who wants to run for office to mm-hmm. do the right thing, mm-hmm. um, I, I'm going to continue to be in this fight, and I'm going to continue to go out there and encourage and support and mentor people who want to run for office. At the same time, I'm going to be out there. I'm going to say to people, every single um, resident and citizen of this country, we cannot give up our country. We have to take back our civic soul. Right? We have to be deeply engaged. And running for office is one of the ways to do that. But every single day, there's civic opportunities for us to be engaged and to take back the soul of our democracy. And we have to do that. We absolutely have to do that. Mia, I want to thank you so much for your time and uh, for for being an inspiration to Asian-American women like myself. And so thank you for all that you do. Oh, thank you and for all that you do. And I'm happy to come back anytime. I love your show. So thank you so much. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take you up on that offer. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, well, in, in solidarity, sister. We'll talk soon. All right. Take care of yourself. Don't go away. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this quick short break. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boys came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. 
from health care reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Thursday, September 7th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. That was such a great conversation that we had with me, Mua, an inspiration to myself and many other Asian American women, uh, but also our communities. I mean, I think just an awesome, warm-hearted, kind-hearted human these types of humans that we need to be running for office. I can't even I can't even begin who is in office or who's sitting in these positions that we call positions of power or leadership within our our own government. And it's mind-blowing to me that these people just kind of sit there and start talking about legislation or policies or laws, laws that are inhumane, in my opinion, laws that break families apart, laws that limit people's freedoms when it's like the opposite of what this country is supposed to be about. So I urge you, if you're not going to run for political office, uh, at least think about being politically engaged. And as me said, you know, we can all be involved in various different ways depending on how we want to get involved. So the point is we all need to get involved that we can't just sit around and do nothing uh, and wait for it to pass. Although this resistance work and everybody coming together, that is in our opinion, I guess if you're listening to the program, that the uh, the changes are going to happen. The changes are happening. So hang in there and we're in this fight together. I'm going to play some interviews with other leaders uh, or voices from our own community and how they're coping, you know, during this politically challenging time. So if it isn't answering the question of if you're going to be politically engaged, well, what are you doing? What are your experiences? And uh, we want to hear them. So here are some voices. If you'd like to share, you can head to michellemeow.com and let me know. Uh, we'd love to have you on the show. So enjoy these interviews. Our guest tonight is Crystal Jang, a longtime LGBTQ activist and co-founder of API Cutesy, Asian Pacific Islander queer women and transgender community. She's made a huge difference in the school system here in San Francisco. Let's get to the interview and hear what she has to say. It's perfect timing. It's, you know, the uh, recognition of, the, of API month. 
um, or what usually people celebrate as Asian American History Month, um, to have you here on the show. I'm sorry it's taken so long. I don't know why. You're so significant <laughs> in our community. But you know, I, I should go down the long list, uh, I should call the honor roll call, of things that you have done or contributed to our community. Um, you have served as a Grand Marshal for San Francisco Pride in 2013. Mm -hmm. um, you are one of the co-founders of API Cutesy. I finally was able to say it correctly. <laughs> by attending the banquet this year, but it stands for Asian Pacific Islander, queer women, and transgender community. And you've been involved in the San Francisco School District in ensuring that there's a, at least LGBTQ curriculum um, at some level. And this is all you know, during the liberation movement. I wanna go back to you coming out um, as a born and raised again, or a born and raised San Francisco native and coming out at 13 years old? 13 years old, yes. What was that like? Well, it was quite lonely, and actually, um, it was exciting because I, was, I did it first in the library, San Francisco Library in, in North Beach, where I looked up the, the uh, meaning of homosexuality because I started to have these feelings of um, attraction to an older girl in the eighth grade. I was in the seventh grade and uh, decided I had to find out a little bit more about it. Uh, I don't know why I went the academic way, because probably there was nobody around, no role models, no sighting of anybody who was Asian and queer. Uh, and if it was queer, it was mostly gay. And I found one person, uh, Tony Wing, who was a dance teacher in San Francisco at the Y. And I would go to his class and sit in this class. I never taught, took dance, but I sat in this class and watched him and studied him because he was, he, he didn't come out as queer, but I thought that that was the only person I ever thought that might be queer. So um, that's what I did. As lonely as that felt, what did it feel like to come out to your, your parents, which you, I think, if I read it correctly, third generation Chinese? Actually, we're fourth generation San Franciscan. Wow. So, um, I didn't come out until much, much later, and as most people do, they come out to their friends first and find a safe space. Then they may come out to siblings, which I did, and then finally, the ultimate is to come out to your parents. Did they understand it? Um, my father was very adventuresome, so he was like a, a dreamer, and he said, oh, I knew all along anyway, and he, he started to list all my girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, this was this and this. And this. My mother, who uh, probably didn't smoke, started smoking at the time, and uh, she had a, a much harder time of it. But she herself was also a pioneer in her own right, being the first uh, Asian American to be in uh, North Beach at the time, Chinese. Um, so she had her own barriers to cross, and she she accepted it as well. They've always accepted my life. You bring up something about you know identifying as Asian and queer and it being somewhat of an isolating experience, um, uh, even though I came out much later, uh, if we compare our coming out stories, I still feel that isolation today. It's almost like, I don't know, maybe it's this innate feeling that we don't talk about sexual orientation in, in our culture, but I was interested in asking you throughout all these years and then you actually creating space for 
um, for queer women, uh, Asian Pacific Islander queer women to be specific in the transgender community to feel safe being out. Uh, what, what can you say about that, you know, this silence that some of us might be facing? I think that being, what I found is being Asian and queer, we are very adept at moving between communities. Um, as being queer and Asian, when I was growing up, there was no one, absolutely no one. So I started really in the white feminist community, separatist community. And being in the white feminist community, I was very Asian. I was very alone. But being in the Asian community, being queer, I was very queer, but I was very alone. So we were able to adapt constantly. I, we're really good at adapting. And uh, I think also being a teacher and being queer, we're very alone as well. So we actually had to create space. I had to actually create spaces in order to feel integrated. Because if I didn't, I would go crazy. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was a way of being, actually I felt like I was being, I, I was born at the right time because there was always these sort of little inlets and crossroads that we could cross, but we could make our own journey. And that was, that was really exciting for me. Get to the exciting part in terms of exciting. <laughs> the exciting part when you're <laughs> actually able to create for 20 years. Well, the space <laughs> to meet other API You know, actually, it, it was very exciting to finally be with somebody who was queer and Asian because my whole journey coming out was really in the white feminist community because there was no one else. And it wasn't until I met in the 1970s and 80s another queer woman and queer community, uh, did I feel whole. And now we have a daughter, Sydney and I have a daughter who's graduating from Mills College the next Saturday, and it's really exciting. We've been together 20 years, and it's just been a wonderful journey. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll continue our interview with Crystal Jane. The spotlight on success and achievement goes to LGBTQI members of the Bay Area who have demonstrated an incredible amount of success. We're very proud to announce that this month's spotlight on success and achievement is Rick Welts. Well, it's been an unbelievable stretch of time, obviously. Uh, everything the Warriors have gone through this season, really a magical season that ended in a championship. Uh, and now to, to top it off a week later with the opportunity to participate in the Pride Parade in San Francisco, it's a, it's a pretty wonderful time. You know, it's been a journey, right? We're all on our own personal journeys and uh, the last four years has been a remarkable part of my life, but it, it's definitely a part of my life. Uh, you know, the decisions I made four years ago to come out in the way that I did, obviously, you know, I had decided I was signing up for something going forward and being part of the discussion. Uh, and, you know, I welcome that. And this is, uh, you know, for me a real honor to, to be participating in this way. And I guess in, in some ways it, it will be a demonstration of how far professional sports has come in, in a very short period of time. Uh, not as far as our society has come. So I think we have a lot to celebrate. Wow, I, I don't think I have any secrets. I don't think I'm that mysterious. You know, I've got a uh, pretty simple life. I like pretty simple things. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a great partner, his name's Todd Gage. Uh, he has two wonderful children, a 14-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy. I 
I uh, got off the parade route, got into a car with them. We drove to Lake Tahoe and I got to watch 14-year-old girls play four soccer games over the course of the weekend and then drive back to the Bay Area. So that's my idea of an exciting weekend, you know, spending it with the kids and my partner and getting to do, you know, the most basic things that any family would get to do. Spotlight on success and achievement presented by Wells Fargo. Together we'll go far. Welcome back. Let's continue our interview with Crystal Jang, co-founder of API Cutesy. Right now, it's a, a scary time for LGBTQ families as we talk about executive orders that the president has signed. I feel it's a direct attack on LGBTQ families before anything else. Uh, how, when did you decide that you wanted to grow a family? Well, actually, um I had decided early on when I was queer and uh, 27. When I was 27, I decided that I was going to have a child. And uh, but at that time, it wasn't the the tenor of the community was that you couldn't be queer first of all and API, and you couldn't uh, have a child as an unwed mother, uh, which was more important to my mother than anything else. Being queer in API and having a child wasn't as important as being unwed uh, mother and so I had to set that aside even though I had picked a donor who was a friend I had to set it aside and now approaching when I was approaching 50 I had this compulsion it just there was no way that I was going to live the rest of my life without being a mother it was so important to me so I decided that to I'll make a decision by parachuting out of a plane because by skydiving, once you take that step, you can't say, I changed my mind. You can't turn back. So I decided to adopt. And uh, Sydney was a person who was a friend at the time. And we decided that um, the person I was going to go to China with to adopt couldn't make it. So I asked her to come along. And we adopted this wonderful, I adopted as a single woman. And the, the problem was that I had to I had to give up my identity as a queer activist because China was not allowing us to adopt. So I sent them a picture of me in front of a rainbow flag saying, this is who I am. And they didn't pick up on the fact that it was a rainbow flag. <laughs> but that was my way of saying, OK, this is who I am. And Sydney and I adopted, came back, and we became a family. Wow. It was an amazing story. And we've been together for 20 years. I just turned 70. And my daughter is now 21, and she's graduating from Mills College. I want to look just like you when I turn 70. <laughs> so what's the secret? The secret is activism. <laughs> I'm over here complaining about losing going. hair. You just you keep, keep going. You keep going. You keep going. You keep going. It keeps you young. It keeps you in the fight. You keep going, and you keep going. Touching on that, I, I mean, you also mentioned being an educator, you know, Lots of us in the LGBTQ community remember the 70s uh, as the moment in which we fought the Briggs Initiative. Right. Um, where we're at with education today, there's there's all these issues of access for transgender students, or it's become a controversy. Um, I want to stick on this whole idea of, of continuing to fight. For you at 70 years old and having seen so many different ways in 
what activism has done in your own personal life. What do you think we need to be protective of today? We really need to understand that no matter where we think, no matter what we think we've accomplished, um, it's never enough. And that if you, I think we were very complacent. And I think this is why we're in the situation we're in now politically. Because I didn't think that at 70, after all that we've done and accomplished, that we would still need to do more. And we got kicked in the butt. And we, just, and, and we now have to keep going. And the whole key is that you cannot be complacent. You need to understand that there's always something more to do. If it's not for yourself, it's for another community, and that we're all part of the global community. We're all connected. And you can't just say, I've got mine, and you, you know, uh, I'm not going to fight for you. We need to fight together. What can the young millennials, as you mentioned, who were there, who, who also attended the banquet, what could we learn you know, from the senior community? I think that's one thing great about API Cutesy is that it's a community that we've had that really tries to integrate intergenerationally. That's why we have the Phoenix Award. That's why we have the scholarships. That's why we have the banquet in general. And I think that having conversations with each other and making sure that you connect with what was the past, what the efforts were to come to the future, because I think a lot of people think that this is, we were born into privilege. And we actually aren't born into privilege. We have to work and fight for everything that we have so we can work together to move our community forward. We have to continue to be intergenerational as activists. Crystal, I want to thank you so much for joining me here on this program. Most importantly, what I want to say to you is thank you for coming out at a time in which you risk your life and your bravery today means that I was born into that privilege where I could walk around with a half-shaven head and uh, <laughs> some converse and some non-conforming clothes. So I'm so forever grateful for everything that you've done. And I'm so grateful for you to continue the fight and to give us the voice. As we have heard by now, the president's executive orders on immigration has had a very deep and negative impact on all of our communities. Joining us tonight is Marisala Esparza, who's with the San Francisco Immigrant Legal and Education Network, and she's here to tell us on what to do if approached by ICE. The country has been keeping you busy. <laughs> yes, very busy, very um, busy. And what I mean by that is that the, uh, the president and, and the, the attitude um, that he has set in place regarding undocumented immigrants or, or immigrants in general has been dangerous. I think a lot of people in the community are, are just asking, what is going on? There's a heightened fear, panic in the community, but also a sense of, okay, so this is happening, this is real, what are we going to do about it? What do we need to do? What can we do? How can we organize ourselves? Um, what are our rights? Getting informed as much as possible about what we can do to resist. It seemed like the country was on the right track in addressing dreamers and children of immigrant families. Now it, we, we've really fallen off the cliff. Now we're not just talking about uh, what we thought that this current president wanted to do was target you know, criminals, he has said. 
but this is a general widespread attack on the immigrant community, right? I just want to make that clear. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say we were on the right track before. I mean, Obama got the title deporter-in-chief for a reason, um, because under his administration, um, the most amount of immigrants were deported. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say before that that we were on the right track anyways. I think that there were different glimmers of hope um, with the DACA program, with DAPA potentially. Um, and now it's kind of like we know we're a target. We know that under Obama there were these so-called priorities um, of people who were um, being targeted by ICE officers and people who, undocumented immigrants who did not fall under those uh, priorities were technically or they felt a lot safer. But now there are no priorities anymore. Um, ICE has full discretion um, to enforce um, enforcement activities to their full discretion. What are you seeing, you know, being out there in the field? Um, what kinds of people are being impacted or affected? Well, I would say anyone who's undocumented as well as legal permanent residents, as we saw with um, the travel ban. So anyone who's not a U.S. citizen right now is definitely concerned. Folks who are, um, who have the opportunity to become citizens are now kind of feeling that urge to do so. And we're encouraging folks who can and who want to become citizens to do that as well. Um, but in terms of, you know, who are the targets, it's, everyone's a target right now. People might think that, uh, well, these people did something wrong. Yeah. Like, what are you seeing? Are they family members? Are they businessmen? I mean, it's, like I said, it's everyone. I mean, we try to stay away from fe feeding into that rhetoric of good immigrants versus bad immigrants. I mean, mm -hmm. we feel that everyone has the right to migrate, to search for a better life, has the right to due process. Um, so I would say that, like I said, it's everyone. There's mm -hmm. no kind of like, it falls within this type of mm -hmm. folk that are being affected or it's only these people who fit into this category. Mm -hmm. It is everyone. Um, and so we're seeing alike right now, you know, undocumented folks, LPR folks, U.S. citizens, everyone's asking, how can we help? Mm -hmm. um, and so we've put together the Rapid Response Network um, that has been up and running in San Francisco to address those questions. What to do in general during this time? Is there any advice to, to, to everyone who's being impacted? Um, yes. Yeah. So in San Francisco, we have the Rapid Response Network, which is made up of three very specific components. The first is um, a 24-hour hotline. The hotline is designed so that anyone can call and report ICE activity. As soon as we hear that ICE activity is happening um, here in San Francisco, we'll go into the second phase, which is verification. We have been seeing a lot you know, of rumors um, that ICE you know, was on 24th admission or that ICE was at, you know, a Costco somewhere. Um, so we've gotten those reports, and a lot of them are rumors fueled by fear and panic within the community. So for us, we need people to report what's happening, and then we will go and verify whether that's true or not. We will canvas the area and then um, send out an alert whether it was verified and it was truly ICE, 
agents or whether it was a false alarm. And as a way to stem and mitigate that fear that paralyzes the community. In the event that it was ICE agents and that someone is detained, um, we will set up the third piece or activate the third piece, which is the attorney activation, where we have attorneys on standby who are ready to go down to the processing center and uh, file for representation of that individual in order to halt or stop the deportation um, and represent that individual. So the biggest thing is we're asking folks to call the hotline if they do see any ICE agents in the neighborhood being as specific as possible with the location, how many agents, why do you think it's ICE, uh, ICE officers? Um, and so, yeah, the hotline's 415-200-1548. Thank you, that's 415-200-1548. I got that in my mind. Yeah. Um, so the follow-up question to that, to that is, what happens or what should you do if you're approached by an ICE agent? Yes, so regardless you know, of your um, status, immigration status, uh, people have certain constitutional rights. Um, and it is our job to inform everyone of what their rights are and what to do. So um, people have the most rights in their home because um, ICE officers are not allowed to enter you know, a home, a place of residence, unless they have a signed warrant by um, a judge. You know, like more than 99% of the time, they don't have a warrant. Um, so we tell people, don't open the door, ask for, um, to see a warrant. ICE has what are called administrative warrants, um, which is basically a high level ICE officer signing a piece of paper saying, oh yeah, sure, you guys can go and find these people. Um, and so being able to distinguish that, ask for a warrant, don't open the door, remain silent, um, just give your first name, don't say anything else. If, you know, if you're on the street and ICE starts questioning you, don't answer any questions and ask them if you're free to leave. If they say you are free to leave, walk away, don't run. Um, and if they say that you're not free to leave or they're detaining you, immediately ask for an attorney. Um, and then call the hotline, like I said, and uh, we will get you connected to someone who's able to help. Um. I'm going to ask this question, you know, what if you don't speak English? There's, so, especially if you don't speak English, you can ask for interpretation. You can ask um, that you need someone to interpret in your language. But there's also some materials that we're developing. Um, they're called red cards or just know your rights cards, which on one side it has in language what to do, what your rights are. And on the other side, in English, it, sa it says, I refuse to speak to you. I want to talk to an attorney. Um, you know, and you hand that card over to the ICE agents if they're refusing to provide um, interpretation as well. Now, let's talk about San Francisco as a city. Um, yes. So people know San Francisco is a sanctuary city. The mayor has been vocal about, you know, anti-ICE um, uh, activities or and or not working or cooperating with ICE on a certain level. 
what what are the updates as far as San Francisco goes and yes. immigration issues? So in San Francisco, right now, the hotline, the raid verification piece, the attorney activation, all of that is just actually in the bubble of San Francisco. We only have enough resources to be able to provide these services in San Francisco. We're working with Alameda County as well. Um, they just secured funding for a rapid response network, so we're replicating the system in Alameda County. What can the rest of us do who are impacted? Yeah, so we are working with Bay Resistance and the Immigration Liberation Movement to actually train volunteers on how to become legal observers, how to do raid verification, how to work within our system. Thank you, Maricela. Thank you so much for joining us here and for having the courage to talk about this very important issue. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemiao.com.